Good morning, everybody. One day, um, a man came up to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to live forever? It was the equivalent of the modern-day question, what do I have to do to get into heaven? Doesn't seem to be a whole lot of people asking that question today, does there? Uh, maybe it's because a growing number of people in our day aren't convinced that living forever is a real possibility or that there really is a heaven. The prevailing belief seems to be that there is only this life and that's it. And so most people focus on finding happiness and fulfillment in this life, getting ahead in this world, doing whatever it takes to secure personal fulfillment right now in this life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I mean, that was... Uh, uh, as or something King Solomon said in the context of life under the sun, life, uh, this life only. Ironically, turns out that the more someone lives that way, as Solomon also pointed out, you know, securing happiness and fulfillment for this life and in this world only, it seems the more somebody lives that way, the less happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction they tend to experience in this life under the sun. And the reason for that, as countless psychologists have explained, is that happiness and fulfillment seem to be byproducts and not goals or primary objectives in and of themselves. They are byproducts that tend to elude you if you make them the primary goal. If you make happiness your primary pursuit, it generally eludes you. Happiness, as it turns out, is the natural byproduct of a healthy way of life. And I have a hunch that this is actually the question Jesus was being asked. When the young man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life kind of being, in that time, kind of a, uh, you know, a full life. He, he was asking, what must I do to inherit abundant life, a full life, a rich and satisfying life? And Jesus' response, well, you might be surprised. So let's read this together. Stories found in, um, in, in three of the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, um, uh, and uh, Matthew, Matthew actually mentions that this young man was... Uh, that this man was, was young. Luke mentions that he was uh, a ruler. And so you, you put them all together, and the result is uh, the, the story of the rich young ruler. They're all the same story, but each writer mentions different details. We're going to look at Luke's account since we have to pick one. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. This is what it says. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, uh, by addressing Jesus as good teacher, this, this young man was breaking all precedent. In, in all of the ancient Jewish literature, there's no record of any rabbi ever being addressed as good teacher. And in fact, the rabbis were actually famous for saying there is nothing good except the law. So this young ruler is going over the top and showing Jesus honor and maybe even trying to flatter him a little bit. But Jesus' response is this. He says, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. So Jesus actually commandeers the common saying of the rabbis and actually redirects it toward God himself. No one is good except God alone. Now, these are words that often come to my mind whenever I hear somebody say about somebody else, they're a really good person, you know, or, or he's a good man. And, and, and especially when somebody says that about me, you know, he, Jim is such a, a good person. What Jesus says here, it always pops into my mind. Nobody is good. Nobody's good except God alone. And it's really true, isn't it? Any good in me or, or in you or anybody else for that matter, any good that we have is simply the fingerprints of God. Now, I've come to fully recognize that apart from God, there really is, and I'm not just trying to be modest here, there really is nothing good in me or you or anyone else apart from God. We're just animals, literally. I mean, that's the truth of it. We're animals and we act like animals apart from God. God alone is the source of all goodness. God alone possesses good. He is the sole manufacturer, distributor, and proprietor of good. And whatever good is in you and me is on loan from God or is an extension, is an extension or expression of God's own goodness in us. I think, I think we all get that, at least to some degree. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus answers this young man's questions. And how do you suppose he answered it? Most of you know the story, but if you're a little fuzzy on it, like, for example, you know, you're a Jesus follower, so you know that it's by grace and grace alone that we are saved, not by virtue of our own good works, uh, and that salvation is found only in Jesus, and that Jesus himself said that eternal life comes only through belief in him. See, if, if you were asked this question by someone, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And those are the kinds of things that immediately come into your mind. You might be surprised at how Jesus answered that question. The young man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? He says, you know the commandments. You know the commandments. You want eternal life? You want to go to heaven? Do you want abundant life, a full life, a rich and satisfying life? The commandments. You know them. The commandments. Wait, I thought eternal life, life to the full, I thought all that stuff came from believing in Jesus. I thought it wasn't about keeping the commandments and, and obeying all the rules and doing all the right stuff and all that. I, I just thought I had to believe. Well, and that's true. But if you really believe, you'll obey the commandments. That's basically what Jesus said and John and Paul and every New Testament writer. If you really believe, you'll obey the command. Not, not just obey, not, not just believe that he existed. Like James, the half-brother of Jesus, said this. He said, uh, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe so much so that they tremble. The kind of believing we are called to is a kind of believing that impacts our way of life. Our decisions, our choices, our priorities, our values, our attitudes, our behavior, all of which 
subsequently impacts our quality of life. There's a story about a famous tightrope walker named Blondin. I've told this story many times over the years, um, and, and so if you've been coming to Hope for any length of time, you've probably heard me tell this story. Uh, Blondin was a famous tightrope walker who lived around the turn of the previous century. He was known for his showmanship and for staging incredible feats of daring. He was kind of the evil Knievel of, of his day, and one of the daring feats uh, that he performed was in, it, it involved stretching a steel cable across Niagara Falls and announcing to the world that he was going to walk the tightrope across Niagara Falls. He would be the first person ever to do this from the United States side of Niagara Falls to the Canadian side and, and, and uh, on a tightrope. And so he put up posters and he took out ads in the newspaper and he handed out flyers and he wanted to draw a huge crowd. And sure enough, the day came and there were masses and masses of people. And Blondin was famous for working the crowd into a frenzy. And so he would do that. He would say like, do you all believe? Do you believe that I can walk across these falls on this tight rope uh, from, from here to Canada and back again? And of course, the crowd wanted to see this. So they would all ye yell, yes, we believe you. We believe you can do this. And he would say, do you really believe that I can do this? And they would say, yes, we believe you. And so he got on the tightrope and he walked across Niagara Falls to the Canadian side where they checked to make sure he wasn't carrying any banned produce and then walked back again, and the crowd was going wild, chanting his name, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. And, and then he said to the crowd, do you all believe I can take this wheelbarrow across this tightrope to the other side and back? And again they said, yes, we believe, we believe, we believe. And he said, do you really believe? And they shouted, yes. And so he went to one section of the crowd and they said, you people right here, do you believe that I can do this incredible feat? And they shouted, we believe. Went to a different section. How about you? Do you believe that I, the amazing blonde, am capable of succeeding at this daring feat? And they chanted in unison, we believe, we believe. And so he singled out one man and he said, sir, do you believe that I can do this incredible feat? And the man said, yes. Yes, I believe you can. And he, Blondin said, then please, sir, will you step into the wheelbarrow? <laughs> the fact is, nobody believed to that extent. Nobody was willing to get into the wheelbarrow. Actually, his manager got in the wheelbarrow, and he pushed his manager across the tightrope and back in a wheelbarrow. True story. Here's the point. Blondin was asking that one man for a whole different kind of believing, wasn't he? And so does Jesus. Jesus says, get in the wheelbarrow. Not, not just so he can perform some spectacle. Jesus says, get in, because I want to take you somewhere. We're in the fifth and final week of our series, Way of Life, which is a great series for everybody because everybody's got one. Everybody has a way of life. We don't often reflect on how our way of life is impacting our quality of life. In fact, we're often very ignorant in that regard. It, it literally took me years to figure out that my eating habits and my refusing to exercise dramatically impacted my quality of life. In fact, I'm still in the process of kind of making that connection because I often go through periods where I tend to think maybe I actually can 
eat a second or third donut and be fine. Maybe I actually can go a week without any physical exercise and, 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 and be okay. Our way of life has enormous impact on the quality of, of our life, despite the fact most of us really like our way of life and are attached to our way of life and don't want to change our way of life, even though it be, may be making us miserable. But guess what? God is not all that attached to your way of life. In fact, God actually wants to change your way of life, if not completely abolish it and give you a brand new one. Paul talks a lot about this in his many letters to the Christians living in first century Rome. Um, he, he talks about uh, our need to discard our old way of life and embrace the new way of life that God has for us. And that's what this series has been all about. And we've zoomed out actually quite a bit to get the big picture to kind of frame it uh, in a large sense uh, using the Ten Commandments as our blueprint for the way of life that God has handed to every human being. Um, human beings, to those he created in his image and likeness, which includes you and me. If you're a human being, then you have been created in his image and likeness, so this blueprint is for you. It is the way God intended for every human being to live. And that's why, that's why Jesus answered this young man the way he did. He was, he was speaking the truth. Do you want a full, abundant, rich, and satisfying life forever and ever? Keep the commandments. Obey the commandments, and you will live. You will flourish. We're tempted to view these commandments as unrealistic and austere demands from an overprotective and controlling, harsh, unfeeling parent. But we need to resist that temptation. We need to see them and embrace them as the life-giving, wise, loving instructions, guidelines, and guardrails that they are intended for your maximum blessing and benefit. Otherwise... If you just see them as austere and, and unreasonable demands, it, if we're not convinced that they are an expression of God's love and care for us, we'll be inclined toward outward compliance, but genuinely not allowing them to shape our way of life, which sadly we've all been guilty of, including the young man in this story. The young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to really live fully and forever? Jesus says, you know the commandments. And then Jesus quotes half of them. He recites half of them. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony and honor your father and mother. And we have to wonder why Jesus only quoted five of the ten. Why these five? Let me take a stab at that. The five he quoted, they're really easy boxes to check, aren't they? These are easy to comply with outwardly. Never committed adultery, technically. Never murdered anybody. Never stole anything, per se. Never, never gave false testimony in a court of law. Honored my father and mother for the most part. Boxes check. So the young man says to Jesus, All these I have kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said, You still lack one thing. Ah, here it comes. Here it comes. 
You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus said he only lacked one thing. But why did Jesus not mention the rest of the commands? I am the Lord your God who delivered you from slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. Don't worship things that you made with your own hands. Don't use my name in vain, which, as we discussed, means don't use my name to pursue your own selfish interests. Don't use my name as a cover for selfish or evil behavior. Honor the Sabbath. You know, remember you're not God. If you think back at what was said in this series about each one of these commands and how they are all interconnected and how you can, uh, how, how they all seem to be uh, centered around the same themes, you kind of see what Jesus is doing here. When I read a story like this, I sometimes tend to zero in on the things that were not told in the story. Like, just for example, what was the real motive behind this young man's question? Was he trying to justify himself? Or was he trying to trap Jesus? Uh, or, or did he really, really want to know? In some stories in the Gospels, the writer tells you, you know, in saying this, they were trying to trap Jesus. Or, you know, he asked this question to try to justify himself. But in this story, we're not told. None of them tell us. Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they don't tell us. So we kind of have to assume he really genuinely wants to know the answer to this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? At least he thought he wanted to know the answer to that question. Another thing we're not told in the story is what was behind his response. All these things I've kept since I was a boy. What did he mean like? What, what, what did he mean by that? Uh, was he saying this with a smile, like proud of himself, you know, like, good teacher, I'm happy to report, I've kept all these things since I was a boy. Or was it more like, you know, if I'm being honest, I've, I've kept all these things since I was a boy, and yet I still feel like I haven't inherited eternal life. I still don't feel like I'm living a rich, full, and satisfying life. I still feel like I'm missing something. And because we don't know what, he was, what was going through his mind when he said all these things I've kept from my youth, we can't know what was going through his head when Jesus said, one thing you lack. And that's really what I want to know. But we're not told. What was he thinking and feeling when Jesus said, one thing you lack? Was he, was he offended by that? Discouraged, or maybe he maybe he he leaned in a little bit, thinking, you know what, I'm finally gonna be told what it is I've been missing my whole life, and why I feel that despite all my wealth and my status, I'm still missing out on eternal life. We don't know what his attitude was in that moment, but what happened next what happens next is is very revealing. Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Think about it. This is a very extraordinary offer. Not an offer Jesus gave to just anyone. But this is a different level of believing, isn't it? This is getting in the wheelbarrow, and there is no turning back. I, I know a lot of people who would have instantly taken Jesus up on that offer. In fact, Matthew was arguably one that did take Jesus up on that offer. He, he was a tax collector, so he was likely very wealthy, but he left it all to follow Jesus. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, they, they all tell us this, 
When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. In this story, Jesus lists five of the Ten Commandments. I referenced four of the five that he left out, uh, which were the first four commandments. What was the other command that Jesus had conspicuously left out that we haven't men mentioned yet? Anybody know? What's the command that we still haven't covered here that Jesus actually left out? Anybody? How about this one? We, no, we covered that one, but thank you. Um, how about this? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That's the 10th commandment. I want you to think of, for a moment how is this command different from all the ones before? This is the, the final commandment. This is the 10th commandment. How is this command different from the ones before it? There are at least a few ways, a handful of ways this command is unique. I want to point out just a couple of ways in which this command is unique. First of all, this. All the other commands are commands that you can actually comply with outwardly, but without necessarily complying inwardly. No other gods? Fine. You will never observe me offering sacrifices, burning incense, or singing worship songs to another deity. Actually, let, let me reel that back, because strike that last line. I like some songs that are songs that you actually wouldn't do in church and uh, you get my drift. So strike that last one, but burning incense and all that, good. Don't make a graven image. No one can ever accuse me of sculpting something and then offering sacrifices to it. Uh, don't use God's name in vain. I have never, I have never used God's name in vain and gosh darn it, I never will. Honor the Sabbath, honor my parents, Adultery, murder, lying, sting. See, all these other commands are ones you can comply with outwardly without necessarily complying inwardly. But the last one, this last one, thou shalt not covet. You shall not covet. That's all a matter of the heart, isn't it? it it's, all, it's an internal affair. It's, it's an inside job. The Tenth Commandment. We might sometimes think of it as to be kind of like an anticlimactic postscript to the preceding truly weighty commands. You know, like, like God is up in heaven and he's going, okay, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. Uh, mm, let me see. We can't have just nine commandments. That won't do. We need to round it out. So uh, how about this? And try to be happy with what you have. Actually, when you, when you actually think about it and truly understand it, what you find is that the 10th commandment is actually a summary, an internalized summation of the previous nine. It wraps them all up together and points out that this is all really comes down to an internal, it's a, it's a matter of the heart. Think about it. Paul equates covetousness with idolatry. Worshipping other gods or, or worshipping the things of this world. In his letter to the Colossian, Colossians, he writes this. He says, um, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
Jesus' half-brother, James, says this, What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot uh, obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You see how they're all kind of being brought together and actually summed up in this in this last tenth commandment. So, but is James saying here that it's wrong to desire good things? Not at all. In fact, just a few verses earlier, he actually says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in heaven. Desiring good things is not coveting. So what exactly does it mean to covet? Well, the traditional interpretation is desiring something that belongs to somebody else. Somebody else has it, yeah, and you want it. You know, and, and in the commandment, it's particularly uh, their wife or husband, their servant, their ox or donkey, but then God adds, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. So it would seem that at the heart of covetousness is envy. Somebody else has something you don't have, and you think you should have it just because. If they have it, why shouldn't you have it, right? It's only fair. I'm entitled to something simply because somebody else has it. That's the prevailing attitude of our culture. If they have a bike, I should have a bike too because, you know, equity and equality and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, but, but, but they got a paper route, see, and they worked for a year and they saved their money and they bought that bike. What difference does that make? If they have a bike, I should have it too, just in principle. It's kind of like saying... If, if they have six-pack abs and 7% body mass index, then I should have six-pack abs and 7% body, body mass index. But they went to the gym every day and worked for a year and didn't eat three bowls of Captain Crunch for breakfast every morning. That doesn't matter. I should have it too. <laughs> now, is it wrong to have six-pack abs and 7% and, uh, you know, BMI? No, not at all. Is it wrong to want a bike? No, it is not. And it's very likely God wants you to have those things because every good and perfect gift comes from God. But James continues. James says this. You have and do not ask. You have, you have because you do not ask. You don't ask God. In other words, you leave God out of the equation. You want that and, you know, you just want that. God's not in the equation. You leave God out of your pursuits. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You ask and do not receive because you ask only to satisfy your envy. You ask and do not receive because God essentially says, no, no, I'm not going to grant that to you, at least not right now, because, because your motives are selfish, and if I was to grant that to you, it would be detrimental to you. Again, it's not necessarily wrong to want something that somebody else might already have. A good marriage, you know? Everybody wants that. A new car, a, a successful career, a nice house, an ox or a donkey. Now, God works through your desires and is eager to help you acquire and achieve those things. So what is coveting? Coveting this is my definition, is fostering or pursuing something to the exclusion of God. It's pursuing your desires without including God in the pursuit of that desires, afraid that he might put conditions on or qualifications or, or ask something of you in that. 
And when you pursue a desire to the exclusion of God, it becomes an evil desire. How so? Well, remember, because God alone is good, and if you exclude God, you exclude good. And when you exclude, exclude good, you're left with evil. That's what evil is. Evil is simply the absence of good. That's all evil is. And the absence of good is the absence of God. So any desire that you pursue, wanting to keep God at arm's length, wanting to exclude him altogether, becomes an evil desire. Think, think about that carefully, and you'll find that it's actually true. Any desire you have that you cannot include God in becomes an evil desire. And that's why the Apostle Paul equated coveting with idolatry. You see, it's making a God out of our desires. It's putting our desires before God. It's fostering desires that are not submitted to or subject or subject to God. The result is that you wind up enslaved to your desires. And maybe that's why God began the whole list of Ten Commandments with, I am the God who brought you out of slavery. Slavery is not being able to live happily without that thing you want. Here's something else that makes this command unique. This command, perhaps more than any other of the commands, demonstrates that God's intention for us in his commandments truly are for our flourishing, our fulfillment, our happiness. What difference does it make to God whether we covet or not? Zero. Makes no difference to God himself whether we covet or not. But it makes a world of difference to us. It's the difference between living in peace and contentment or living in chronic envy, resentment, and dissatisfaction. I mean, what are the primary symptoms of covetousness, uh, of fostering a desire for something that God has not yet said yes to, uh, of excluding God from your pursuit of something that, that maybe he has given to someone else but not to you? What are the, what are the symptoms of that? I'll tell you, and it's quite simple. It's bitterness and resentment discontentment, chronic irritability because you just can't seem to attain or lay hold of that thing you cannot, you think you cannot live without. Anger, frustration, then, then what is the cure for covetousness? Who, who, can, who can take a stab at it? What's, what's the cure for covetousness? Gratitude. Amen. Gratitude. Gratitude is the cure for covetousness, in fact, when you think about it, gratitude seems to be a powerful, powerful catalyst for keeping all of the commands. If you're grateful to God, you will not be worshiping other gods. If you are grateful to God, you will not use God to further your own selfish interests. If you're grateful to God, you will gladly honor the Sabbath and look forward to expressing your gratitude on a regular basis. You will be grateful for your parents and want to honor them. You will, you will not be tempted to commit adultery because you're grateful for your spouse and not always finding fault with them. You'll not murder other people in your heart out of resentment and envy and bitterness. You'll not steal because you'll be grateful for everything that you have. It's easy easy to see how gratitude helps you keep every one of the Ten Commandments. L listen, the biggest 
under misunderstanding and perhaps even deception about gratitude. Gratitude is not the byproduct of having gotten what you wanted. Gratitude is actually a way of life that generates joy and contentment and fulfillment and happiness even when you haven't gotten everything that you want or desire. And when you train yourself to be grateful, when you train yourself to see gratitude that way and train yourself to be grateful for what you do have, instead of always focusing on what someone else might have that you don't have, I mean, that, that is a surefire way for a life of unhappiness and misery. And misery. Always focusing on, highlighting, talking about, commiserating over, complaining to others about what you don't have but should have because they have it but you don't have it. <laughs> Covetousness is resenting God's goodness to others while ignoring God's goodness to you. That was good. I I'm actually going to say that again covetousness is resenting God's goodness to others while completely ignoring God's goodness to you. And let me tell you, he has been good to you. And yet you need to be reminded and you so easily forget the many blessings God has given you. When you train yourself to be grateful for what you do have, for what God has blessed you with, when you thank God for the many abundant blessings he's already given you, that is the cure to coveting. And more than that, it is actually a catalyst for his commands becoming to you not just a list of rules, a collection of moral mandates, but a way of life that you find incredible delight in and fulfillment in, and joy in. But it's an inside job. It's an inside job, gratitude. We're going to receive communion this morning. Um, worship team, why don't you guys come back up? And as you're getting a place, um, just before this story of the rich young ruler, just before that, Jesus gives a parable about two guys that go to the temple to pray. One of them is, is sitting in the front row going, thank God I'm just such a wonderful person. I'm a good person. I keep all the commandments and I do all the things, or at least outwardly, you know. I, keep, and I, I can check all the boxes. But in the back, there's a man who's just beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus makes the point, that man went home justified before God. What was the difference? I would like to suggest that the difference was that this man, the man beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on, on me, a sinner, is somebody that recognizes the commands of God and how good and wonderful and beautiful they are. And he holds his life up next to them and saying, I want this. I want to be this kind of person. I want to measure up, but I know I don't. So here's a man that actually has internalized God's commands and actually loves God's commands, but recognizes he can't 
fulfill them. This man went home justified. This man received mercy because Jesus made the difference for him. Jesus was able to give him something he could not give himself. Rather than just saying, justifying himself, I've checked all the boxes, but having not actually internalized his commands. So communion is a celebration and, and a reflection on what Jesus has done for us, all of us who love his commands but struggle to keep them. I'm going to lead you in communion in just a moment. We're going to sing part of a worship song first.